Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Ethicast. I'm your host, Bill Coffin. For a second year in a row, the renowned international law firm Morrison Forster, or as we know them, MOFO, has partnered with Corporate Counsel Magazine to launch a 27-question benchmarking survey of in-house counsel, querying organizational, individual, and departmental attitudes and approaches to environmental, social, and governance issues, or ESG. The resulting report, GCs and ESG, Practices, Priorities, and Perspectives, details the survey's first year of comparative data to reveal year-over-year practical and cultural shifts. With me to discuss some of this report's findings are MOFO partners Stacy Sprenkel and Fredo Silva. Stacy is co-chair of MOFO's ESG practice. She also leads the firm's global ethics and compliance practice and is a member of the firm's global anti-corruption team. She regularly assists clients with assessing compliance risks across a broad range of issues and developing strategies to mitigate risks. Fredo is co-chair of MOFO's Social Enterprise and Impact Investing Group and and is a member of the Pro Bono and ESG Strategy Committees. He represents companies and investors in a broad range of corporate and securities law matters and helps clients leverage ESG factors to evaluate risk and opportunities and to invest them responsibly in businesses seeking sustainable growth and impact. Stacey and Fredo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. So Stacey, my first few questions are for you. Um, and this is such a fascinating survey. I can't wait to dive into it. There was a really interesting flip in this year's survey. I think last year, uh, according to the survey, at 77% of organizations, general counsels and legal departments led their organization's ESG strategies. Uh, but this year, that number has shrunk to just 9%. And CEOs and C-suite leaders now lead ESG at some 56% of organizations. Concurrently, ESG compliance is now run in the majority by chief compliance officers rather than general counsels and legal teams. So what accounts for this flip? And where do you see general counsels and legal departments bringing value to ESG strategy and compliance going forward? Great. Thanks, Bill. Well, I think there are a few things going on here. First of all, Um, I think some of this, particularly the increased CEO and CFO involvement, has has a lot to do with the SEC signaling that it wants more board involvement in ESG. And as a result, your C-suite leaders, of course, are going to be interested in the things that the board are interested in. So if they feel that these initiatives are important to the board, they're going to want to be more involved in ESG strategy. I think that is one thing we see. Second, I think a little bit of this may be definitional issues. So for example, a lot of times the GC is the chief compliance officer. A lot of times the compliance team sits within legal. So there's aspects of these numbers, which I think are a little bit hard to gauge their meaning. Um, but, um, But third, I think ESG compliance is becoming a really important aspect of ESG overall, just due to the increasing Um, regulations in the space, which I'm sure we'll keep coming back to. Um, And candidly, compliance teams, chief compliance officers are very well suited to lead the charge when it comes to addressing issues around regulatory compliance. So it does make a lot of sense to see compliance teams being dragged in. In fact, I, as I lead our ethics and compliance practice, I work with chief compliance officers all the time. And it was surprising to me until recently that there weren't more compliance teams that were heavily involved in ESG, given you know their skill sets and frankly the overlap between ESG considerations and the types of issues that compliance teams generally deal with. But to get to the the second part of your question, I mean, I think legal teams should always have a seat at the table, right? I mean, 
They should have be involved with crafting strategy, developing communication plans, certainly disclosures, um, conducting risk assessments, prioritizing um, you know, approaches in different areas because the litigation and enforcement risk in this area is significant and it's growing substantially. And frankly, you know, it's a missed opportunity not to have legal involved at the outset so that you can kind of mitigate around those risks um, as you're developing your strategy and as you're communicating about what you're doing in this space. There appears to be an interesting shift in focus uh, that we saw in the survey from governance to environmental. Mm -hmm. uh, last year, 38% of respondents were very focused on governance, but this year that number is only 15%. Uh, similarly, last year, 29% of respondents were very focused on environmental, but this year that number has climbed all the way up to 52%. The focus on S appear, you know, appears to have remained relatively constant at 23 or 24% over the last two years. So I'd love to know what do you think uh, has driven the shift and what does it tell you about what we might expect uh, this time next year? Yeah. Well, I mean, so just to repeat the the refrain, but the, the I think this is more reflective of a shift toward environmental focus as a result of the the rapidly evolving regulatory and disclosure environment here. Um, you know, the the SEC's proposed rules, CSRD. So much is happening in this space that companies are really um, at a rapid pace trying to get a hold of and prepare for. And so I think I think of it more as not really a shift away from governance, but sort of reflective of a, a necessary change in focus to just address the rapidly evolving landscape. I don't expect a lot to change over the next year, although I will say that at some point S will increase because the regulatory environment around human rights is, is going to be growing at a fast pace and the risks there from an enforcement and litigation perspective the due diligence requirements are going to be growing a lot and even companies that aren't necessarily subject to existing requirements are counterparties to companies that are and so i do think that that we're going to increasingly see more focus around s but i don't think the environmental focus is going away um, and i think that's a good thing you know one of the the numbers that really grabbed my attention from the survey uh, it's kind of talking about some of the things you've mentioned, which is there was a 48% shift in the rating, the motivational factors behind organizations' ESG strategies. Um, the you know, managing risk and regulatory compliance went from 8% to 56%, kind of reflecting right. what you're just talking about, um, while improving brand image and market competitiveness, which are two, two priorities that I have kind of long established with you know, ESG programs, they both took major nosedives. So can you talk a little bit more about what you see, you know, from this in the short and long term? And what do you think might make those numbers, you know, shift once again? Because these don't feel like necessarily permanent shifts. These, these numbers kind of change. Yeah, no, they do. And again, like, so not to just keep saying the same refrain, but this rapid <laughs> emergence of regulations and disclosure requirements and the, the litigation risks and enforcement risks and reputational risks that come with them, are they're game changers right now. And most clients that I see, most companies that I see, um, you know, from those that are just starting their ESG journeys to those that even have well-developed programs in this area are really, you know, moving at fast pace, trying to get ahead of this and trying to get ready. Um, so I think that that's what drives the increase there. You know, candidly, brand image and market competitiveness are still rated about as high as 
as you know, managing the compliance risks, they just used to be rated a lot higher. I mean, this could be reflective of a couple of things. I mean, certainly, and I know we'll talk about it more later, um, there's this anti-ESG movement. Um, I don't think that that at the end of the day is having a substantial impact on how companies are thinking about like their brand strategy and market competitiveness, but it could be playing a little bit of a part in some of those number changes, but I don't expect them to be long-term. I think that as consumers and employees and all of the different stakeholder groups become more and more focused on, you know, climate and making more conscious decisions about purchasing, um, you know, and become more educated in this area, then companies, as a matter of fact, are going to need to have a long-term strategy um, you know, to gain market competitiveness and to make sure that their brand image is appropriate. And in a way, they're all, they all sort of go hand in hand because if you, you know, you screw up on the regulatory side, right, or you face major litigation or enforcement in this area, that does substantial brand, brand image damage and impacts your market competitiveness. So they all sort of play into each other. But, um, but I do think that, that there will be, a, you know, I hope <laughs> a rebound in people's willingness to, um, you know, externally embrace ESG, or even if you don't call it ESG, whatever it is that that we're doing is is needed and it's a reality. And um, and I don't think it's going anywhere. I totally agree with you. Like these are long-term strategies that companies need in order to remain viable in markets. Um, and so, you know, among other reasons. And so I don't think that we'll see it going away. I just think that we've got this sort of near-term shift toward really preparing for this onslaught of, of new um, you know, regula regulations and new landscape, really. Well, Fredo, a few questions for you. Um, the survey points out that a combined 51% of companies with revenue below $1 billion report no environmental performance goals. So what kind of risks does that lack of performance goals present, if any? And where can general counsels and legal teams best advise clients that haven't yet established clear goals in this area? Yeah, and I think that the if any point, you know, is a good one because it really depends on what kind of company you are and what you've set out there. So if you've made broader commitments around sustainability or environmental goals or like net zero targets, et cetera, but you're not disclosing any kind of granular you know, performance goals or metrics about how you're getting there, there is some risk that there might be litigation from, you know, from shareholders, um, from, from consumers uh, saying, look, you don't actually plan to really get to these net zero commitments. They're, they're, they're sort of fake commitments that you're not actually really trying to get to and, and bringing sort of disclosure-based lawsuits around that. Um, and there have been lawsuits around, you know, lack of sincerity, like around, you know, greenwashing, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and some of these lacking in performance goals might indicate that. But on the other hand, if you're not making broader commitments, the SEC doesn't obligate you to have um, um, any uh, goals around this or to disclose them. And if you're not obligated to disclose goals, you don't have them. Well, you can't be dinged by the SEC under a disclosure regime for not disclosing what you don't have, right? What you get in trouble for is disclosing stuff that uh, that 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 doesn't actually exist or improperly, you know, disclosing how you are achieving the goals. So silence is not actually the worst thing. Um, having said that, there would be a few things where uh, I would note there's that support having environmental performance goals and maybe talking about them, even if they're not required by the SEC. Um, you know, so one is that uh, from a regulatory perspective, um, with the EU's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, there are going to be sustainability reporting obligations on U.S. publicly traded companies 
uh, of certain sizes that are doing certain amounts of revenue and activities in Europe, regardless of what rules the SEC may or may not come out with in the future. And even if you're not covered by the EU's guidelines, if you're part of the supply chain where you're going to have upward reporting obligations to customers that do have those obligations, you yourself will end up having to report to them. And so at a certain level, you are probably going to be tracking the data anyway. And so can there be a benefit from reporting and, 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 and putting in goals? You know, potentially, um, right? From a third party perspective, as a public company, there's risk associated with proxy advisors, institutional investors, you know, retail investors being unhappy, you know, that you haven't actually disclosed, right? So not a risk thing, but, you know, trying to keep those folks on your side, keep them, you know, recommending your governance committee members, keep on voting for your, your, your stock and not, you know, and being invested in you, having those kinds of goals may be, um, may be attractive uh, to those constituencies. Um, you know, and I think that also from an opportunities perspective, if you have uh, environmental issues on your agenda and are and letting that and having that affect how the company is trying to, you know, course correct, build resilience, prepare for what's to come on the environmental perspective, you know, that's a good thing, whether there's, you know, regulation around that um, or not, right? And so with all that in mind, I think that a trend that we are observing is that companies are making operational goals and, and strategy adjustments where necessary without necessarily communicating those to the public in general, you know, through um, through specific goals in part to avoid liability and part to uh, avoid the cost, right? Um, yeah. So what I would say as, as counsel is if you are going to establish these goals, um, make sure that they are approved by legal, uh, make sure that they're being tracked rigorously, um, and make sure that there is consistency between all of your platforms, whether it's the SEC reporting or, you know, your, 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 well, I guess they're called tweets anymore. Your your X's or whatever they're called now. You know, yeah. you know your, your your threads. How whatever your website. What that whatever you're reporting on that you have consistency across all those platforms um, regarding those goals and how you get there and that you're and, and that to do that you're running it by legal. Data shows that DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and environmental issues are most heavily tracked among companies with more than one billion dollars in revenue whereas two-thirds of the smaller companies covered in this report do not measure KPIs tied to compensation. So I'd love to know from your perspective, what's driving that reality? Uh, and more importantly, how do you see those numbers changing in the future? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, in our experience, larger companies are focused on ESG and incorporating them into compensation for a variety of reasons, including investor pressure to sort of put your money where your mouth is, um, benchmarking, right? A lot of a lot of our public companies look at what their peers are doing and track based off of that, um, as as well as pressure from regulators and from investors. Um, where we do th see this trend coming into play is more in bonuses rather than um, than like performance stock vesting. Um, and bonuses are often a little a little bit more loosey goosey. They can be a little bit more discretionary. So it's not necessarily always the case you're going to see KPIs tied to um, in, in this area tied to like specific payout outcomes as much as one of a variety of factors that, that are being looked at, um, you know, and, and, and to the contrast, I think that we're seeing it less for the, 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 the smaller companies in part because they have fewer resources, frankly, and, and tracking this data is already fairly difficult. And so how you tie to that can be, uh, uh, can be, can be difficult. And also a lot of times they're, they're more focused, frankly, on growth um, when they're in that sub 1 billion phase. Um, you know, with the EU corporate sustainability directive that I referenced earlier coming out, I think that there is going to be increasing disclosure, even for smaller companies, because they have to as part of their supply chain reporting. And so that may end up having a pair, you know, a sort of an add on effect into how it rolls over into comp. So I do see that this is probably going to end up starting to happen, you know, increasingly um, at, at the lower uh, at the lower revenue and valuation sizes. 
Um, but one thing I will say that's kind of interesting um, about comp and about this this issue is um, in the last year's in this last year's proxy season, this was the first year that the SEC's pay versus performance rules for the S, uh, for the for the CEO um, uh, came into effect, and uh, and you were required uh, to disclose uh, uh, between three and seven key financial metrics that impact um, compensation for named executive officers. And what we found is that very few companies were including. Um, you know, ESG, you know, DEI, environmental, whatever related KPIs um, in those key performance metrics for the named executive officers. And this was surprising to us um, because, you know, even, even the, the, the Delaware public benefit corporations, right? They're like hybrid style corporations that have a social mission. Even they weren't reporting these um, into their, into their, uh, in their, in their executive officer um, um, key metrics. And I think there's a few reasons for that, right? One is, reporting of non-financial metrics was voluntary. And so arguably a lot of these ESG metrics are, are, are non-financial, right? They don't show up in the face of the financial statements yet, right? Um, I, think, I think number two um, is when new regulations come out, people sort of take a more conservative approach and report on fewer things. Um, and so maybe we'll see that developing. Um, I think those are probably the biggest uh, rationales for this. But what is interesting is that Exxon actually did report on, uh, on, on environmental and, uh, and ESG metrics as part of the key metrics for named executive officer compensation. I think that's kind of that that's kind of interesting to see that out there, and um, that's in the, uh, is based off of uh, shareholder activism um, around Exxon. But hopefully next year we'll see this uh, see this trend expand um, and 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 get a little bit more reporting on on how uh, these KPIs may impact executive comp generally um, through that new disclosure regime. An awful lot has been said in the media about anti-ESG backlash, but a substantial majority of the companies in this survey report that they haven't really experienced that, nor does it look like that has meaningfully impacted their own ESG strategies. So what's really going on here? Should we expect more substantive changes to ESG strategies, especially public companies, or does this feel like a short-term issue applied to a long-term strategy? You know, I have a lot of feelings on this. I know Stacey does too. <laughs> Everyone does. This is same. Same. Uh, <laughs> about for, for quite a while, um, right? Where, you know, I, I, the way I look at it is it's like ESG is the new CRT, where it doesn't really matter if people know what, they, what it means, they're gonna talk about it and it's gonna be a problem. And, and part of that language issue is really, I think, a large driver of the problem. But I think about ESG and impact as, as very different things, you know, sitting here as coach of our, of our you know, impact investing practice group, right? Where, where you know, um, I think about ESG as about compliance, about regulatory, about risk, about the bottom line, about making sure that you know you comply because if you don't, you'll be fined or lose permits. That you are looking around corners, that you're thinking proactively to manage risk and how and, and the cost that will come to your business if you don't strategize around um, around around impending risks. And that's really what a board is supposed to do: is they're supposed to look around corners, think in the long term, right? Whereas impact, you know, maybe call it double bottom line, you know. But I I think about that as sort of more about the externalities, how your business affects third parties you know, your non-stockholder stakeholders. And while I think I and a lot of the investors that I work with care about impact, um, that is separate from ESG. And there is a role for people that care about the double bottom line. And there's a role for people that and, and companies that really are focused on, on long-term shareholder value. And I think that what happens is a lot of, a, a lot of folks conflate those two together. And so when they're anti-ESG, what they're really anti is impact, right? What they care about is maximizing the pension fund returns, right? And ESG is a tool to help do that, or it can be, you know, when used the way that Stacey and I and I and, and the other mofos, you know, talk about. 
Um, so I would keep that in mind as part of this conversation. And, 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 and also I think that's the way that, that a lot of people are thinking about it within the companies. Um, and when, when why they're saying, yeah, no, it's not necessarily, you know, impacting us, but, you know, to drill down on a few of the points, well, first, you know, a majority of the anti-ESG legislation at the moment is targeting entities that um, are either contracting um, with or investing public or pension funds, right? They're contracting with state governments, contracting with the public, contracting with pension funds. So that means that consequently, a lot of this of the companies that we're advising, that we surveyed, that you're thinking about are not actually falling under the category of companies that are affected by the anti-ESG legislation. So that I think is one more direct answer to your question. Um, another is that there is both pro-ESG legislation and anti-ESG legislation. And the pro-ESG legislation is passing at a higher rate than the, the anti-ESG legislation, which in fact on the majority tends to be failing, right? And so um, when people are complying, they're doing because they have to, right? And, and you know, when, when someone says, why are you looking at this? And you say, well, because the regulators are saying I have to, that's kind of a good defense, you know, especially coupling that with a little bit more of the vocabulary of the explanation on how this really is going to the, to the bottom line. Um, and so, and, and that I think substantively is where you get at it, right? Why are the companies not changing strategy and why are they getting less backlash than you might see, you know, from the noise that, that some attorney generals are making? Well, it's because the ESG focus is enhancing the bottom line, which is actually what they want. So a lot of what we see companies doing is really managing the PR around this and taking out the buzzword, taking out the ESG, you know, taking out that word, that phrase, and still doing what they were needed to be doing, but maybe just talking about it differently. And I think that gets to the point that Stacey was making earlier, which is, you know, it'll be nice when we can talk about this more openly. We're still doing it. Companies are still doing it, but they're maybe using a different vocabulary that's a little bit less incendiary in the current economic environment. Stacey and Frito, it's so great to hear you talk about this. This has been a fantastic conversation. I learned a lot and I very much appreciate you for coming on the show and for sharing your insights with us today. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. Thank you very much. Indeed. Well, look, to learn more about this year's survey results, MoFo has hosted a virtual event on June 22nd that included a fireside chat and an interactive panel discussion with industry leaders that explores how the role of in-house legal leaders has shifted and how ESG considerations have morphed from a nice-to-have marketing strategy to a top regulatory priority with significant concern for shareholders and stakeholders. And I'm going to read that all over again because I bottle it. This is why we record these things. To learn more about this year's survey results, MoFo hosted a virtual event on June 22nd that included a fireside chat and interactive panel discussion with industry leaders that explores how the role of in-house legal leaders has shifted and how ESG considerations have morphed from a nice-to-have marketing strategy to a top regulatory priority and significant concern for stakeholders. To view a recording of this event, please visit mofo.com slash ESG dash GCS. That's Gordon, Charlie, Sharon. I'm Bill Coffin, and this has been The Ethicast. For more episodes, please visit the Ethisphere YouTube channel at youtube.com slash ethisphere. And if this is your first time enjoying the show, please make sure to like and subscribe either on YouTube or on one of our podcasting platforms at Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon Music. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, remember, strong ethics is good business.